angels on the battlefield. Some will say it's shell shock, it's PTSD, it's hallucinations, all from trauma of war. On this episode of Survivor Angels, I am going to talk to an award-winning author who knows better, who's talked to people firsthand, and he's going to tell us their stories. It's time for Survivor Angels, an approach to strengthen trauma survivors. Here, you can escape what draws negativity and engage your positive abilities and the gifts that you've always had. Let's activate your angels. And to help you on that journey, here's Chaplain Jody. Today, I am very privileged to have with me professional author, historian, TV personality, the list goes on. Welcome, Neil Story in Norfolk, England. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's lovely to meet you, Jody. We have, I think, an incredible topic to discuss today. Yeah, and I'm so really interested in, in your, your thoughts. Uh, I said professional author. How many books have you written, Neil? I think it's around about 50 books. But they are on a, many different topics. That if it if we had the professions on our passports, I would be a social historian. They were my pre and post grad studies. But my books range from very much social history to the stories of people in both world wars to the more esoteric titles of ghosts and and legends and folklore. Having said that. And I, and I know the social history piece. How would you say, because I've never asked anybody this question before, how would you say the social history piece fits into the part that's supernatural and paranormal? Well, I grew up in a very old county, county of Norfolk. And it's still got a lot of very old fashioned ways to it. And I come from a very, very long line of storytellers. In fact, most old Norfolk families know how to tell a good old story or two. Some of them rather tall, some of them rather wonderful. And sometimes their stories, they probably wouldn't tell thinking that there was nothing exceptional about them at all, but they are profoundly lovely and, and heartwarming and wonderful for the spirit. So from my personal point of view is, is that social history, it's a story. It's telling a story of people uh, and, and the past, their feelings. Uh, even, even today, we all can tell a story, can't you? You go out and have an interesting day shopping. You meet with friends you haven't met in a long while. Or you see technology that you've never been exposed to before. Uh, these are all stories and how they affect us and how we how we view them so to me social history the paranormal the strange the the folk storytelling tradition are all intertwined i would agree definitely agree so follow-up question i know you have really cued in 
on World War One and World War Two. What sparked your interest with those particular wars? I was privileged to grow up at a time when we still had veterans from both world wars, uh, men and women, do you know? Uh, very special people, people who had served in the First World War really were Edwardians or Victorians, you know? They were very much a different generation. Their whole way of dressing was different that, uh, from those that I knew. Uh, the joke used to be in the countryside, they had more peelings than an onion, which meant you had, they'd have a jacket on, they'd have a waistcoat, they'd have a shirt, and they'd probably have a, some layers underneath, a Henley undergarment, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and that comes from years ago when they used to have men working on the roads or in hot jobs in steamy areas. They'd be stripping off. So you'd all see the strip the top half. But going back, you know, to the turn of the century, there were still children being goose greased and with newspaper sewn into their underwear for the wintertime. My grandmother was born in 1917. And as a little girl, she could remember that. So these are incredible stories. So I collected social history stories. But what really captured my imagination, and I, and I could see that these remarkable people of these the First and Second World War were fading fast, very, very fast from the First World War point of view. And I really wanted to capture their stories. And they often had never written them down. They had never, th never ever thought that their story mattered because they were just doing what all of their friends were doing. They, they felt there was nothing exceptional about the, the extraordinary lives that they had lived. And, and it wasn't just those who saw combat, but those on the home front uh, helping on out. My granny was an ambulance driver in World War II. She attended the Blitz on the city of Norwich in Norfolk. But I've interviewed people who were firemen, policemen, home guard, all sorts of jobs on the home front, observer call, absolutely incredible. Uh, and it was a massive task. There were others involved working on recording, of course there were, and, and some of the big museums, the Imperial War Museum has a wonderful sound archive. But a lot of the people that I interviewed would have never pushed themselves forward. If there was an appeal in the press, they would have never, you had to kind of know them or have a friend of a friend or, or books out there that they enjoyed and liked and they trusted you. They had to trust you that you were not going to um, tell everybody about it or make them out to be something that they were not. Some of them said, I'm, I'm going to tell you this now, but you're not to write it up until I'm gone. <laughs> That's the way it was. Yes. And as we know, stories have been twisted. It's, it's part of the human experience, which leads me to my next question. The infamous story of the Angel of Mons. Hoax, rumor, people who have been in combat, you know, who have suffered PTSD or shell shock, whatever, whatever you care to call it, it's, it's the same no matter which war you've been part of, say they've experienced angels on the battlefield. What do you in say? In one episode of MASH, which I adore, 
and it is regularly shown over in this country. There is an early appearance of Harry Morgan, who later portrayed Colonel Sherman, Sherman Potter. And we love him. You know, he was such a sage character. Wonderful. Good old soldier. But he was in an earlier episode. He played a general. He was a bit, bit crazy, bit, bit bats. But wonderfully. And it's what introduced him to all the team of, uh, of MASH. And they brought him back when they needed a new colonel for the camp. And in his character, it was beautifully written. And he, he was on parade. And he was talking to the Padre. And he said, there are no atheists in foxholes. Blackjack per per Pershing, 1917. <laughs> and I thought, do you know what? Uh, if you're a real, uh, you, you don't have to be an eccentric uh, old soldier to say that. Uh, <laughs> in the most extraordinary circumstances, uh, men that I've known from both world wars, uh, they've all said, you know, I might not have been a much of a believer <laughs> before, but I, I was then on that day. Some of them tragically did lose their faith. And I respect any any man or woman, that's their journey. Although I dare say the angels didn't forsake them. But there we are. That's our view. And, and we've got to respect people on every journey, particularly those exposed to combat. So what happened in 1914? before you lot in America got involved in this unpleasantness, you know. <laughs> Mind you, as a little aside, and you'll hear me laugh a lot. I loved the veterans that I knew. And I loved them because through all of that adversity, the ones that I knew, and I knew that there were men who were altered for the rest of their lives because of what they had been exposed to. And we may have encountered a few of them and, you know, that was very tragic. Some of them, if we're really honest, were miserable devils all their lives before and after the war. And no matter what they went through. <laughs> and the old boy should tell you that. Oh, he's a miserable devil. Always was. <laughs> but you never know what, what was his background story. The men that I knew and got on with. And that it was only really, really knew well the male veterans of World War I. I knew men and women who had served in World War II. And you'll hear me laugh because they laughed a lot. They laughed because their minds would often not never go to the combat side. Their minds would go back to the comradeship that they, they knew, the people that they knew. And I think that was their escape that they would love to think about the good times. The yeah, it was blue and tough, tougher than any of us could have ever imagined, unless you were there. And that they'd laugh. And that was the most beautiful gift to a young man, a young historian. Uh, the laughter that they, they, and they were quite free about it. So in 1914, the British Expeditionary Force goes over to Flanders. Actually, the battles were going on in France and Flanders. And at that point in time, there's very little trench warfare. What had happened was it was quite fluid. And they still believed in cavalry. Remember, we haven't got tanks or 
anything quite like that. There were less than 100 motorized vehicles in the entire British Army. So you, are, you have infantry. And I'll clean this up because they were known as the PBI, poor blooming infantry. And any old soldier out there will correct me and tell me what the B really stands for. <laughs> and know why. Uh, but you know, foot sloggers across Flanders and France and going out from wipers into these salients. They're put onto a back foot. Uh, the British Army had never, you know, this modern army. God, last fracas we'd had was in 1815, the Battle of Waterloo. Come along on the, on the continent. France was the old enemy. They're now our allies, thank goodness. And this magnificent British Army with an empire upon which the sun never sets all over the world. We know differently now, but they thought at that time it was wonderful. These children were raised in the spirit of empire and a belief in the greatness of Queen Victoria and all the great industrial uh, achievements of Great Britain. Now, there's a lot of bad things that went on in that empire and the way people were treated. But those kids didn't know that. They were raised to salute the flag and respect their royal family. And so when they're knocked onto a back heel in those opening battles, that's quite a shock to them. They've come down a bit of a peg and they're fighting to hold the line and they're starting to have to dig in and fight some very fierce battles. So this combination of faith, this combination of clinging on, this combination of the heat of battle. Many of these men were professional soldiers you'll see that there was an awful lot of recruitment for the First World War. We'd sent out our professionals, the British Expeditionary Force, mostly professionals, old soldiers. So when this story starts getting about, it's not actually angels above them. The story that Arthur Macon wrote, and he made no bones about it. It was written, it was called The Bowman. And The Bowman are the bowmen of battles like Agincourt, because if you think of the Shakespeare play, Henry V, these are the fields of, of Flanders where Henry V and his noble bowmen under Sir Thomas Erpingham, you know, they fired the arrows and the, the bowmen, the sense of the past, looking to the past of the metal of vi victory and triumph, these ancient fields. You've heard of the, you know, did those feet... <laughs> those feet in England, you know, <laughs> walk upon England's mountains green. You know, it's this is the idea that we're now in France and our feet are walking on in the footsteps of the bowmen. So we need to find that courage. So what did they see? Were the bowmen amongst them? Were they ghostly amongst them? Macon's story certainly inspired them. There were men that said, we saw the figure of St. George in the sky and leading us on into battle. But when Macon's story came out, men were touched to feel that, well, we have seen something. And they believed that they had seen above them angels angels beside them now we could use a strong word you could use the word hoax but 
the men that were writing, they were real soldiers. They were really there. So what did they see? In a time of ultimate pressure, I dare say there's a few people listening out there that know what that's like from combat. Maybe the Korean War, where they set MASH, or perhaps the, the Vietnam War, and other combat. And any old soldier will tell you, or sailor, or airman, when the shells are really flying, you see things. You see things you don't expect to see. Now, that can be that you think you're going to die and you're going to see the white tunnel. Some of us think it really is real. And I've spoken to enough people who've seen it that think that, that white doorway. So we don't know. It exists. Mm-hmm. You know, so what, what will these guys see? I don't know. At that time, you've got to remember, this is 1914. They're not going to be you issuing drugs to these men. Uh, although there were uh, in the front line as, as stimulants and things, uh, there were men, of course, that you'd have morphine to kill pain if you'd been wounded. You want a stretcher. Um, that may happen. But these, the men that you see writing, and they were quite a lot after making story, that yours is just a story I believe that I have seen. And that's when you start seeing books like The Angel of Mons, The Music of the Angel of Mons. Uh, the witness statements are often added to accounts of the bowmen, the stories of the bowmen. What I rather like is the this is true. And you may have heard this in the States that in 19, the Christmas of 1914, there'd been an awful lot of talk that the war was going to be over by Christmas 1914. Mm-hmm. And so on Christmas Day, no one told them anything. When the British soldiers got up and looked across no man's land, there's Germans standing on the top of the trenches. <laughs> we thought, <laughs> now, what are we going to do? Are we going to shoot them? Or are we going to walk it because these are not very very deep trenches they've just got to try and hold the line you walk across no man's land <laughs> what are you doing <laughs> and the germans put up little christmas trees and had chocolate that had been sent there. merry christmas tommy because <laughs> that's what you call british soldier where it was called the tommy so uh but when they got chatting and they saw and they're talking about Christmas. They shared drinks. This is over quite an area uh, of an area that known as Plug Street. It's in Flanders and Flanders Fields. And the British soldiers looked at their belts. Hey, what's, what's all that about? Got me uns. God with us. Oh, yes, God with us. He's on our side. No, 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 no. We've had angels and mons on our side. We, we are the Christian soldiers. No, no. We, they found out that they were both Christian soldiers. And this is the crazy, and the, the, the high ups really disliked it because they found they, they got on with each other and they never put the soldiers back facing each other again because the, once they met and talked to each other, both had got on their side and both sides had believed that they had seen angels above and amongst them. And fight and beside them. Angels, of course, wouldn't fight, but they would be with you to look after the soldiers. Incredible. <laughs> Very incredible. 
and and I I come from a big military family. My dad was one of fourteen siblings, of which I believe seven of them were were boys, yeah. and all but one went off to World War II. You talk about the laughter piece. Um, I would love to sit and listen to them talk because oh. it was laughter and fun and joy. And my mom at times would get irritated with my dad <laughs> because she'd say, well, he doesn't take things seriously. Well, he was a businessman. He took things very seriously, but he was also a combat veteran. Yes. And you just hit the nail on the head with that. It's so true for Americans. I think soldiers around the world would say it's the same absolutely thing. Absolutely true. Yes. And it's the humor that gets you through. But beyond those stories of these angels, and I think, them, the, if I put it this way, I don't believe it was a hoax because Macon wanted to write this powerful story, this very patriotic story. And if somebody in combat believes that they see an angel or St. George riding beside an order, if it gets you through, if it gets you through, I don't care. If it helps bring peace, great. See yes. all the angels you want. It doesn't hurt yes. anybody. I, and if, you know, I don't, I cannot imagine. Some of these men that went to war were devoutly religious. They yes. were in church. They were in chapel regularly. They struggled with their conscious conscience of whether they should go. They're not trained ministers, but they have grown up with church or chapel. But they went. And the men that I, I interviewed said initially, those that went in 1914 that joined up, they went because they didn't want to let their comrades down. They didn't want to miss the great adventure. Yeah, you get the flags waving, of course you get your uniform and that's all right. In fact, that's rather good for some of them because they were so hard up to have all the clothes you could want, proper boots on your feet, three meals a day and you get paid for it. Well, we'll do some of that and we'll be back for Christmas. <laughs> but they got caught out, so a lot of them, bless them. Of course they went. Yes. But these later men and, and the men from 1914 didn't just talk of angels. They talked very earnestly. They either heard it as a rumour. Some of them that I have, have met explained that they have seen a figure known as the Comrade in White. Now, this is known not just in the British Army, but in the French Army. And maybe if we were to dig, you would find it in the Imperial German Army too. But this is very much a, a First World War phenomenon. And the comrade in white was, let me give you a for instance story. A man is in the middle of no man's land. This is the land between the two trenches. And if you went over early in the morning, the idea was to take the enemy trench. But so often they open up with machine guns. You couldn't take the trench. So you have to fall back. You might grab a mate or two on the way, but there could be quite a lot of lads. They've been wounded. They can't easily move. And they're stranded on no man's land because they've attacked at dawn and it's now coming up broad daylight. 
you might be lucky, you might be able to put up a, a, a Red Cross flag and they'd be able to collect their wounded. But sometimes, no, put the flag up, they're still firing or there's shell fire going out. You couldn't go out because the shell fire comes from a mile behind the line. And there are stories of men out there in the middle of nowhere. And you think, I'm going to be laying here all day, I'm going to bleed to death. And some, you sense somebody's coming and you, and you bob your head up and you can see this fellow in that early morning light or in the dark quite often. And you, he's he wearing a very, very light or even white uniform. They think, is it, is it a doctor? It can't be a nurse because at that time you didn't allow combat nurses into the front line in World War One. So what, but the French wore a very pale blue uniform, the Poilus. Was it a Frenchman coming to help me, might think the Englishman, or the, or the French might think maybe it was a more exotic troops because they had troops from all off, all parts of their colonies. Maybe a British soldier might think it was a Sikh troop and you would see his turban or something. But no, his clothes, or, or that maybe they meant the, the lighter clothes of a, 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 a hot service climate soldier, you know. And they'd reach you and they would tend to your, your wounds, bind them up, and then guide you. So, or soldiers that are wounded, walking wounded, and lost. And the comrade would appear from nowhere and guide you to the dressing station or back to your lines and then say, Good luck to you. Often they wouldn't say very much. That's why they thought that maybe they were a foreign troop. They'd thumb up, off, the, and then they'd go. And you look around. They, oh, he must have hopped over the, over the parapet or back wherever he's got to go. Not a shell hit him. Not a shell hit the pair of them. But the comrade in white, got you back to your line. Isn't That's that incredible? Amazing. Absolutely amazing. So that's why, like in the Angel of Mons, they talk about clothed in a white raiment. Absolutely right. Absolutely <laughs> right. And for those that were in that front line with the angels, yes, it was full angels, wings, the glow amongst them, the, the, the classic halo vision. But you have to imagine if these men are exposed to... We've never seen a war like the First World War. If you expose somebody to killing, the horror of battle, close quarter battle, having to go in uh, and fight man to man with a bayonet attached to the end of your rifle, charging and what do you see beside you? What, what, what is beside you? Do you have no faith at all? Is there no time to think of, of faith? Or is there somewhere in the back of your mind, you'll hear many men that were on the stretches, they'd cry for mother. And they would even believe they've seen their mother, their wife, somebody they deeply loved and knew cared for them. Often the cry would be for mother because the minds go into the safest possible place that they can go. And for these men, inspired by what they had seen in, in churches and, and chapels, and the powerful stories, the Bible stories that they would have known from Sunday school when you're shown picture books with, with Jesus and his, the glowing aura around him and the angels. 
it's it's one of man's earliest faiths, isn't it? To to find the angel with the halo, to find the aura, that iconic image, and somewhere it's locked in. <laughs> so I'm going to propel us up more to present day, because what you're saying, those of us who were raised with more of a belief system, that it was part of our regular life. That's not so much the case anymore. And I have people always asking me, when am I going to see an angel? Why can't I see angels? How would you respond to them? I know what I've said, but how would you respond to them? You've already seen them. <laughs> it's that easy. Uh, you won't see an angel with wings, nor will you... You might, if you are very unlucky, see a demon with horns. In my view, these are both constructs. They are constructs of the very early, the early church, and particularly the medieval church, when you have to depict good and evil. So on the paintings on church walls that you will see that survive around, as far as I know in Europe, I'm no, no great expert on American churches, but I certainly know some of the early settler churches beyond the Puritans, uh, the German uh, settlers in America brought over some of the Gothic styles with angels, with wings and cherubs. I know that for a fact, but I've, I've seen those in the States. So what I feel is that these early constructs, they would help people. If you looked on the wall, where's heaven? Heaven's up. Okay. And here are the good guys. The good guys have got the wings. Like the good guy cowboys used to wear white hats, you know. <laughs> it's that white coming in. They're the good guys. Where are the bad guys, right? Well, they're down and they look bad. Oh, they look bad. They got horns and they got tridents because they want you to be frightened of them. And nowadays, if people are of a, a, a belief that there are demons, and I, I certainly believe and I have seen, uh, unfortunately, uh, having worked with um, some very wonderful people within the church, I've seen dark forces at work. And I know that if you can visualize a horned demon, a devil, there's a good chance that the dark forces that you are dealing with will manifest in that form because they will know that it will frighten you in the same way they could manifest in the form of a, a child, a doctor, a soldier, or somebody that you love, but their face is all rotten. In the same way, what does an angel look like? For real, for real. What are the forces of light? Well, I used to like Michael Landon in, 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 in A Highway to Heaven, you know. <laughs> now, he is an angel. Come on, he's an angel. We all need a Michael yes. Landon, don't we? But that's kind of it, you know. If if they're, they've come back to join us again, uh, then they'll look like just, just like you and me. And they will do their thing in a, in a human form or in spirit. And I very much feel that in this life, if you have suffered an awful lot, and I hope people don't, God bless you all, but I hope uh, if you've known friends, particularly if you've known friends who you knew in good health and good humor, 
but their illness changed them and and they became miserable gits <laughs> or could be because they're in so much pain and you're trying to understand and you're trying to be that friend but it's really hard but when they pass i believe that their spirit it sheds all the old rubbish all the pain and then they get out of the bed they'll come and see you they will come and see you even if it's a feeling even if they guide you to find a book in a bookstore that you secondhand bookstore the book you always should have bought and read if you are guided there buy it it's your your friend coming to help you find that or something you've lost and suddenly they pass away and suddenly you find that well it's been there all along but it's just there's they're, they're just helping you find it. The little, the little kindnesses that you will find. That's that. I, I, if it brings people comfort, well, bring them comfort. But I like to think that's the sick friend who has suffered, free of all of that, and to help you a little bit and never be far away. Because to be honest with you, even even if you don't believe, I I know. Oh, I do know this. If you've got a really good friend, they're always with you because they're here and here in your heart. Sentimental old devil, aren't I? But there we are. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that any day, Neil. And I think that's a great place for us to end because I know the angels certainly brought us together to have this conversation today. And hopefully we'll have another conversation down the line a bit too, because I know that there's more that we could, we could talk about. So thank you so much for coming on Survivor Angels. I can't wait until we can meet in person. I look forward to the day. I, I hope so, Jody. I've got some wonderfully inspirational stories to share with people. And if you're really short of a tale or two, I could even tell you how God and prayer have helped me come through some very dark times in my life too. We're going to hold that for part two. I Thanks can't so wait much. to hear it. Thanks again for joining Chaplain Jody on Survivor Angels. For more information, go to chaplainjody.me. That's chaplainjody.me. And on Facebook at Survivor Angels-Chaplain Jody. Sound effects for the show created by Andre Opate and provided by PixBay. This is Dave Schrader. Until next time, sending you off to activate your angels.